it may be a moment to say, what are the parts that I enjoy about alcohol? And are there other ways that I can do that that work for me? Today, we are talking about drinking. We've got expert clinical psychologist and Stanford professor, Dr. Deborah Kaysen. She's here for a deep dive into what's really happening with alcohol use currently and the changes in certain communities' behavior that might surprise you. If the idea of dry January has had you wondering about your own relationship with alcohol, or if someone you love has struggled with substance abuse, you'll want to listen to today's baggage check. Welcome. I'm Dr. Andrea Bonnier, and this is Baggage Check, mental health talk and advice, with new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Baggage Check is not a show about luggage or travel. Incidentally, it is also not a show about the 1990s electronic toy sensation, the Furby. All right, let's get to it. Today, we're focusing on alcohol. And I was lucky enough to get expert researcher and Stanford psychologist, Dr. Deborah Kaysen. She's also the chief of Stanford's Division of Public Mental Health and Population Sciences. And she knows a lot about the human side of alcohol abuse. We talk about the latest in treatment research, the intriguing role of how what you expect alcohol will do very much influences what it will do, how to start thinking about whether or not you could use some help in cutting back or whether or not you should or shouldn't, and the complicated relationship between alcohol abuse and trauma. She and I are both huge fans of applying data to real life, and it was a fascinating conversation. We also had a lot of laughs, which was an unexpected joy too. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Deborah Kaysen. So welcome, Dr. Kaysen. I'm really glad to have you here today. I talk with so many people who are concerned about alcohol use, concerned about a loved one, noticing some patterns in their own behavior that's problematic. So I'm just really glad that you took the time to be here today. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. And thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to have a conversation with you. Thank you. Wonderful. So Why don't we start out with a little bit about your work? You've obviously been doing a lot of research for a really long time, and I'm kind of curious how you got started. I fell into doing research on alcohol use, which is kind of funny. It's a a little bit of a story about serendipity. So my training in graduate school was in treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. How do we help people who've been through horrible traumatic events? And when I went to do my training, I was looking for fellowships, which is how you finish up your training to go into an academic career. And my family uh, did not want to leave Seattle, Washington. We moved to Seattle, they fell in love. And so we had a make it work moment. (laughs) Was it the coffee? (laughs) (laughs) It could have been the coffee. It could have been that you don't have to shovel rain. Ah, that's never have to shovel rain. Uh, And so I think there was some pushback about thinking about going back to the Northeast. And I found a training program that was in the field of alcohol use and wrote a grant that was funded by the National Institutes of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism 
to marry the work I had already been doing around PTSD and trauma in with research around alcohol and PTSD comorbidity. And that launched a stage of my career that I don't know that I had planned, but that has remained a primary interest and home for me. Completely serendipitous. Yeah. I love it. I love it. So obviously, we're in an intense time. We've been in an intense time over the past few years. There's all kinds of data about people's stressors, their depressive symptoms, their anxiety mm-hmm. symptoms. I know a lot of data on alcohol use, too. What would you say the the current state of alcohol abuse, alcohol use looks like in the U.S. and even maybe worldwide, too? Where are we culturally with this on the whole? Like many things, it's complicated. Uh, mm-hmm. So what we tend to see when we look at the epidemiological trends in the U.S. is generally alcohol use is actually declining. But it's not declining evenly, and for some groups, it's increasing. So what we see is that for men, their alcohol use is coming down. Mm-hmm. For women, we are starting to drink more like men. Interesting. That disparity is starting to close. That gap is starting to narrow. Exactly. And so that may have some interesting long-term health ramifications, especially for women's health um, within the U.S. Wow. And to be clear, so when you say overall use is declining, does that mean that the percentage of people who consider themselves drinkers or who engage in drinking has gone down? Does it mean the average amount of drinks for a typical person has gone down? What does that look like? So it's overall consumption over time. Mm-hmm. So it's not okay. about self-definition. Mm-hmm. Right? That, that gets even more complicated. How do people define their behavior? But if we just look at rates of alcohol consumption in the U.S., in general, that's been going down. If we look mm-hmm. at specific age groups, Right. So one of the things that we tend to look at are, for example, what's happening with adolescents, what's happening with young adults, college students or college age people. Mm-hmm. In general, the trends are that people are overall drinking less. Mm-hmm. But women are drinking more. Yeah. It's so interesting, that disparity that, mm-hmm. you know, and I wonder... Well, before we even get into that gender piece, I wonder, is there any recent data that indicates that maybe the pandemic has made an impact in one way or another? I know anecdotally, it seemed at least when people were stuck at home at the beginning Mm -hmm. of the pandemic, there was perhaps more drinking. But on the other hand, people who drank more when they were out with other people at restaurants and bars weren't doing that as much. So I imagine that's complicated, too, the effects of the pandemic. Yeah, that is really complicated and interesting. So, um, and it, it also has been complicated because much of the early research on the effects of the pandemic was because it was being done so fast, less methodologically rigorous, more cross-sectional snapshots on people's drinking. So it's taken us a bit to get the higher quality studies and the longitudinal studies yes. that we need to answer those questions. Um, In general, what we're seeing in the U.S. is 
Again, a little bit of a decrease in drinking, but for specific groups, we've seen increases in drinking. Um, women's mm-hmm. drinking increased with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. African Americans drinking increased with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And individuals who are in their sort of mid 30s, mid 40s, right? So I would say, um, you know, not that emerging adult, uh, young adult group, but that next age cohort, their drinking increased. Interesting. Yeah. And what do we think about what's going on there? Because, you know, I imagine that's all of this is so complicated. You know, and I've got to say, of course, I love data and I'm used to being around data. And I think sometimes, unfortunately, the way that data is handled in mainstream news sources or in social Mm -hmm. media is such an oversimplification. So I love being able to do these deep dives and to say, hey, on the one hand, here's good news. Hey, overall consumption has declined. But it really is so important to look more deeply because here's where things get really interesting. And it sounds like somewhat concerning. So what do we think? What are some of the hypotheses about what might be going on with some of these communities, some of these demographics that seem to be increasing their consumption rather than having it decrease? And I agree with you because, you know, resources to help people are somewhat limited. And so when we think about how do we target resources, knowing who's at risk is incredibly helpful in being strategic and in messaging. My guess, and it it is, I would say, consistent with the data, is that the groups that are increasing their drinking are the ones that have been most affected by stressors around Mm. COVID-19, around losses, around some of the stressors around taking on additional burdens and duties. And so that's particularly concerning because that pattern of drinking, coping-motivated drinking or stress-related drinking, is much more related to higher alcohol-related consequences. Not so good things coming from that drinking. Interesting. So there's worse effects, essentially, for the folks that are really turning to it for stress-related reasons. I imagine, too, they also have additional comorbidities underlying risks for depression, for trauma, for anxiety that are going to make alcohol maybe more dysfunctional for them than somebody who's doing it in a more relaxed and social, functional type of manner. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, when we think about some of the groups where we know that the mental health concerns around COVID have been a little bit higher, higher rates of anxiety, Mm -hmm. depression, women have taken on more of the burden, especially when we're with kids, around managing multiple kinds of tasks and roles, right? So for women in the workforce, I'm trying to manage a job and I'm trying to be my child's teacher, and I'm trying to do both of those things well at the same time. Right. Um, we also know that of the groups that have had a higher rate of having mental health concerns following COVID, folks who've been a little bit less resilient, uh, younger folks, kids, adolescents, mm-hmm. have borne 
more of the brunt of the mental health impacts of COVID-19 as well. So when we think about women's role often as caregivers within the family, they're worried about their kids. They're trying to take care of their kids. Absolutely. Exactly. And so for some women, they may be coping with those additional stressors through drinking. Mm -hmm. The African-American community has been affected so profoundly by the rate of deaths in the community via COVID. You know, I can think of some patients that I've seen where they are literally going to funerals. They were going to funerals like every week or hearing about Ugh. someone in their social network who had died Yeah, and had more jobs that were on the front lines. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the impact of that and how people may have coped with that stress, again, through drinking, that is my guess is that that played a role. This population wasn't included actually in the recent longitudinal study I was looking at, but in some of my own work, we've looked at the relationship between COVID-related stress and substance use among gender and sexual minorities. And again, mm -hmm. I've seen that same pattern with higher risk and higher use and a clear relationship between stressors on a daily level and drinking. So, right. so you can think about that groups that have decreased men and uh, people who are white. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and those and maybe heterosexual men and, yes. more specifically since some that would of be the my sexual guess. and gender minorities. Yeah. And I remember looking at the data just in terms of anxiety with some students over yeah. the past, it, the anxiety data. And it was stark, too, in terms of yeah. gender identity and sexual orientation mm -hmm. and how that seemed to matter. And I'm, I'm thinking that because COVID almost was an accelerant for any kind of stress, it's almost like the folks who already were maybe on the edge of... Right being more oppressed or being, you know, facing more discrimination or taking on more than their typical, more than what should be their share in the home or yeah. being more likely to be victims of crime or whatever that might be. It's almost like COVID just intensified that and you almost get to mm -hmm. this ex exponential effect. You know, I'm thinking of even just the average working mother who, mm -hmm. if she had an unduly high amount of stress compared to maybe her partner in the past, if her partner was male, and again, every relationship is different, but now she's also worried about her kid's mental health because her kid's mental mm -hmm. health is more likely to be suffering at this point. So it's almost truly exponential growth at that point because COVID was like right. throwing fuel to the fire. And we had a lot of trends that were problematic before COVID, huh? but it's almost like it just hit the accelerator on all of these trends. And they all come exactly. together for certain communities to be hit really, really hard by this. And then right. I imagine when alcohol becomes the chief coping mechanism or attempted coping mechanism, then it just, the habit just becomes more and more automatic. Right. And it can shift the way people drink in ways that, again, lead to more downstream consequences. Right. Mm -hmm. So there, there is some interesting research around when alcohol use is positively versus negatively reinforcing. And so let me put that into English, mm -hmm. right? So let's say I mostly drink to celebrate. I mostly drink to hang out with my friends. When I drink, I'm having positive effects from alcohol. 
I'm drinking in positive uh, situations, and I drink because it might improve a meal. It might improve an outing. Now, over time, as I'm using alcohol to cope, I may be experiencing more of the negative consequences from drinking, and over time, I may be drinking to escape those negative consequences mm-hmm. rather than for those positive reasons. I am drinking now to escape a negative mood, okay, which reinforces it makes it more likely that the next time I'm experiencing a negative mood, I'm going to reach to alcohol as a way to manage that. Right. And of course, that whole vicious cycle, because if your right. life starts to fray at the edges because of your drinking, then the right. way to escape some of that stress becomes more drinking. My partner is fed up with my drinking. I've been yes. you know, chewed out by my boss for being late at work because I was a little bit hungover from the night before, yeah. but now I'm upset about that confrontation with my boss, so I'm going to drink a little bit more. And yeah. that's even before we imagine the true physical dependence possibility where somebody right. actually starts experiencing withdrawals. And so now they're drinking just to feel okay because if right. they stop drinking, then their body feels terrible. Exactly, exactly. And um, when you think about it, the alcohol works short term. If it didn't work short term, mm-hmm. we wouldn't do it generally. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, it's, you know, people are in a sense hardwired to pay much more attention to short term gains. And we may not mm-hmm. notice the long term consequences. They're not as salient yes. for us. They're not as in our face. Yes. So yeah. you can think about how that pattern then can play out, especially for people where, as you brought up, they're already depleted. There's already so much that they're carrying that they feel like they don't have the emotional reserves. Mm-hmm. And what comes to mind there, too, I know you've done an immense amount of work with looking at trauma and the relationship here. Yeah. And I feel like as a culture, we are just starting Mm -hmm. on a larger scale to reckon with what trauma means and how many effects that it has. And I'm really interested in this concept in particular of how for some folks, the escaping from trauma is what starts them down this drinking path. And as you said, maybe it helps a little bit at first, Mm -hmm. but then in reality, it takes them farther and farther away from healing. And it probably, you know, gets them in a situation, obviously, where they're having more problems precisely because of the fact that they're drinking. So what are some of the overall themes that you've seen in this relationship with trauma and alcohol? Absolutely. I mean, this is the bulk of research that I've done. You know, on a daily level, what we've seen is that specific, and it is interesting because, again, it's complicated and nuanced. What we see is that there are certain symptoms of PTSD in particular that make people more likely to drink. But Mm, what's interesting mm -hmm. is that there are certain symptoms that make people less likely to drink on a given day. So, yeah, I know. Um, so, and as a clinician, that is very interesting yes. for me. That's particularly interesting to me because I don't know, even as a clinician, that I would have expected that. And I, I have a guess at what some of those symptoms might be, but I'm excited to hear. Oh. Okay. So I'm, I'm kind of curious. What's your guess about the, the symptom that's kind of most consistently associated with people being more likely to drink? 
I would think it's people who have that higher level of physical arousal and agitation, the higher level of uh, reactivity, muscle tension, that they're carrying their trauma Mm -hmm. in a very physiological way where they feel very stressed, even bodily, that maybe the the lure of the relaxing central nervous system depressant Mm -hmm. effects of alcohol would be strongest in them. But I don't know. That's my conjecture. I'm curious to hear how I did. You're you're pretty (laughs) close. So what we found is that the symptoms that are most associated, sleep is the number one. If you ask people why Uh, they drink, I need to get to sleep. To fall asleep. Yes. Oh, that makes so much sense, especially for folks with PTSD, where the nightmares could be a horror show every single night. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Exactly. It does. And the bummer is that alcohol is a terrible medication for sleep. Right. Right. It helps with sleep initiation, helps you fall asleep. Yes. But it ruins sleep quality. You're much more likely to Mm -hmm. wake up during the night and you're more likely to have rebound effects around grogginess the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. so, you know, what helps people feel rested is a good architecture of their sleep. And alcohol does not help with that at all, right? Yes. So so sleep is the number one symptom. But you are right that other symptoms that people report that they're more likely to, to drink later in the day are some of the intrusive symptoms of PTSD, the memories, the distress at reminders, and then some of those physiological arousal symptoms. Right. So mm-hmm. I almost think about them as kind of the classic hallmark PTSD symptoms. The symptoms that made people less likely to want to drink were more of the depressive kinds of symptoms of PTSD. Mm-hmm. So the emotional, I'm already feeling emotionally numb, the kinds of shutting down kinds of symptoms of PTSD. And what's interesting is we've seen this with other data where folks who are feeling kind of depressed and down often are less likely to drink. Mm-hmm. So it, it is interesting and it suggests that as we work with people, we may want to think about n- more nuanced interventions around what are you trying to cope with, what are you trying to manage, rather than assuming that all of those PTSD symptoms are going to necessarily lead to higher drinking. Yes, that makes sense. I wonder, does this seem to hold true across other types of substances? Or might folks, for instance, with more of the numbness and depressive symptoms, be less likely to drink, but maybe more likely to turn to other types of drugs? I think it's a great question. It's a place where we actually need more data. So I am Mm -hmm. really curious about whether we are going to see similar or different patterns, especially with cannabis. Mm-hmm, My guess sure. is that sleep relationship we'll still see. Right. But I am curious about whether people may be thinking about different substances in different ways around specific symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, my guess is there's going to be sort of a stay tuned here as we gather more data, especially at the daily level to be able yeah. to tease that apart. Because you need very specific kinds of data sets to look at this, right? We see different patterns Absolutely. when we look in broad swatches of time, right? Month mm-hmm. to month, year to year, versus over the course of a day. Yeah, that makes sense. And I feel like things are changing so quickly with cannabis in yes. terms of 
cultural norms in terms of laws, in terms of expectations and acceptance versus, mm-hmm. you know, not accepting it. I mean, I was talking with my kids the other day and, you know, we live in the D.C. area, so we drive on the mm-hmm. D.C. Beltway a lot. And we have all had the experience of riding in a car on the D.C. Beltway and smelling weed mm-hmm. in our car mm-hmm. from someone else's car traveling 55 miles per hour or 70 or whatever. And it's so striking what that says about how ubiquitous cannabis, yeah. I think, has become even compared to just five years ago. And I feel like the pandemic was a big separator because it seems to me there's got to be data that people maybe started using cannabis more during the pandemic. But it seems to me like pre-pandemic, there was a certain expectation of public spaces maybe smelling a little bit, but not so much. And now certain public spaces, it's so pervasive. And I can't yeah. help but think how that then translates in the data to use and Mm -hmm. prevalence race, therefore, of also abuse and how if there's just more consumption overall, you know, at a random town square, how does that then translate to more people maybe having serious problems with it and mental health problems that are correlated with it in terms of they're using it for trauma or they're using it for whatever other mental health issue. Exactly. And that is what people are seeing. I think the other piece that's changed is cannabis has changed. Mm -hmm. So folks are accessing much higher concentrations than previously. And so I think we still don't know what that is going to do in terms of mental health, in terms of physical health. I think that's an open question. Right. Because the THC levels, right? Yeah. 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 The THC levels in particular. And I think I've seen a lot of discussion with that around adolescents in particular, like some adolescents developing syndromes where they're vomiting uncontrollably and and these types of things that maybe their parents or even grandparents would not have expected. But it's because it's different. And when the the THC in particular is more concentrated, we see different effects, more intense effects, more risks. Right. Yeah. So, but I let us on a tangent to cannabis. <laughs> oh, well, I'm we always embracing a tangents. <laughs> I know. I think I was just, I was just as responsible. I let us on a literal tangent about the DC Beltway. So, uh, that's awesome. There we go. <laughs> I'm thinking of my typical listener listening mm. here, and I think we've all had exposure to the idea of what alcohol abuse looks like and maybe it hits really close to home maybe we know we're struggling with it maybe we have a loved one who's in recovery for alcohol addiction how would you start to even think about assessing what problematic alcohol use looks like you know there's been some recent headlines about various data oh you know no alcohol use is safe or maybe this amount is safe if it comes in the form of red wine you know there's so much misinformation or just i should say uncertain information contradictory information i of course as a psych professor and clinician kind of embrace the DSM criteria as much as I have problems with the DSM, but the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders and how that sort of determines, okay, if you meet this number of symptoms, then therefore you have a problem. And what I always try to emphasize to people is that, you know, it has to do with 
how much it affects your life. It's not like there's a magic amount that you drink. But is that kind of how you see things? I mean, for the typical person listening, if they're kind of wondering, hey, I I do have some uneasy feelings about my relationship with alcohol. I have noticed some patterns over the last couple of years that Mm -hmm. don't necessarily feel good. How should somebody start thinking about when there is a problem or when to conceptualize it as a problem? Mm, I love that question. So I think there are some nice resources out there. First of all, the NIAAA website has got some really nice information for the public around what does the research say right now about patterns of drinking, um, around what kinds of drinking may be higher risk, for example. Um, Mm -hmm. The problem with looking at straight up consumption, right, how many drinks do you have during a week, is that it ignores how you are drinking. Is it causing problems in your life? So for example, you know, are you someone where you have a drink with dinner twice a week, three times a week, right? Or are you someone where you don't drink and then all of a sudden you have four drinks? in a short period of time, all on one occasion, right? That Mm -hmm. second pattern of drinking tends to have more serious health effects for people Mm -hmm. and tends to be Mm -hmm. a little bit more problematic. So I think that's one thing to think about. I love the question that you asked about if someone is starting to have questions or worries, you know, I think asking yourself questions about how is this affecting my physical health? Is it affecting Mm -hmm. my physical health? How is this consistent with my values and Mm, what's important to me? Yeah. Right. So someone could be drinking at a level that based on kind of official guidelines is not problematic, but, you know, maybe it's not consistent with their personal values about how they want to live their life, how they want to spend their money, how they want to spend their time. Mm -hmm. And so that may be a place where you decide to make a behavioral shift. Yeah. I love that so much because we talk a lot about values on this show and and choosing Mm -hmm. behaviors that are in accordance to your values and finding a sense of meaning in deeper struggle when there is struggle and really allowing yourself to use values as the guideposts to how you want to live your life and how you want to prioritize things. And I think, you know, I have worked with people where they decide to either lessen their drinking or to officially stop drinking in large part, precisely because of what you mentioned, it's starting yeah. to feel like it's getting in the way of them being the person that they want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really, whether it's because they kind of are taking away time from other stuff, hey, I yeah. actually, I'll drink and then I'll just sit on the couch and I won't end up going and doing interesting things, or I'll be more snappy with my kids because I'm not feeling great because I didn't sleep well the night before because I had an extra glass of wine or whatever it is, or like you said, even just the money. You know, for some people, it could be, is this really how I want to be spending my money? And I think. Stepping back and sort of observing with a reality check of how alcohol affects is so hard, but so important. You know, some people, because they kind of minimize, right? They don't realize, ooh, if I actually look at it, I spent 300 bucks on alcohol the past two months or, you know, whatever it is. They don't notice, ooh, my average night at the bar is actually 80 bucks. I thought it was more like 40 bucks. So being willing to be vulnerable and ask this question seems so important. 
In one of the alcohol interventions that we use with young adults, one of the exercises we do is we ask people how much they spend on average every week on their alcohol use. And then we actually mm -hmm. total it up about how much that costs them a month, a year, as a place to yeah. start a discussion about, does that work for you? And there isn't any right or wrong answer. But for some people, it leads to an aha moment of, I could have gone on vacation with that money. Yes. I know for people quitting smoking back in the day, too, yeah. there were always those tips like, okay, you didn't buy your pack of cigarettes today. Put that money in a little jar and let's yeah. reinforce that after four months. Look at how much you have. After one week, look at how much you have. I imagine for young adults in particular, it can be stark <laughs> because as you're just kind of starting out, <laughs> it's like, okay, this could be the difference between me making rent or not really when I think about it or yeah. me being able to start a retirement account or me being able to go to my friend's wedding and not have to decline right. because I can't afford the plane ticket. Of course, plenty of older folks too. It is a matter of wow, did I really yeah. just drink away part of my kid's college fund or what could have been a college fund or something like that. I love that exercise because I feel like just the observation sometimes is helpful for people to not only gain the self-awareness, but maybe right. to instill a little bit of behavior change itself. Like maybe at home, somebody's saying, okay, I'm going to tally it up and maybe next month. I'll spend a little bit less. I know a lot of people have been thinking about alcohol in particular with the concept of dry January, yep. right? And I know some data, if I'm not mistaken, some data seems to suggest that a lot of folks that do this abstaining from alcohol during January end up drinking less throughout mm -hmm. the rest of the year, which is somewhat encouraging. But I also think any cultural movement, right, <laughs> can sometimes take on a life of its own and you have to ask yourself, yeah how you're doing it and why you're doing it. What are your yeah. thoughts on dry January, so to speak? I think any place that encourages people to do a reset and to just be mm -hmm. contemplative is helpful. It may be a moment to say, what are the parts that I enjoy about alcohol? And are there other ways that I can do that that work for me? So for example, enjoying something that complements a nice meal. Okay, mm -hmm. so can I play with having interesting tea or, you know, non-alcohol mixers and, you know, that feeling of having a, a yeah. nice fancy drink, right? Yes. Does the alcohol have to be part of that? Um, being out with friends, does alcohol actually have to be part of that? You know, and the other piece is not having to think about it as an all or nothing thing. So it may yes. be, I'm going to go out with friends, but do I really need to drink as many drinks to have that be enjoyable, mm -hmm. right? Could I have one drink and then have the rest of my fancy cocktails be non-alcoholic? Mm -hmm. So it may be thinking about it from a downsizing the negative parts or the not so good parts about drinking for a given person. Yes, that makes so much sense. I'm always thinking about well, maybe that's an all or none statement itself. I'm always thinking about all or none thinking. It's like, lady, that's the problem. You're not always supposed to be doing anything. But it comes up so much, right? Yeah. The all or none thinking, the dichotomous thinking, the black or white thinking. And I think for some people, no doubt, and I, you know, I'd love to talk about yeah. treatment in a moment. I think for some people, no doubt, 
abstention is the way to go. Sobriety is the key to keeping them alive. But I also love the idea of people who are somewhere in this middle ground, just really thinking about how they can see nuance of, you know, maybe I'm going to have two glasses instead of three. Maybe I'm going to not drink as many times this month. Maybe I'm going to start off with a cocktail and then transition to, as you said, a mocktail. My goodness, I'm hearing so many interesting drinks that, you know, it makes me wish I was pregnant oh, I again so that I, I was like, <laughs> back when I was pregnant, I would be having Shirley Temples and stuff. And now I could have the most sophisticated, gorgeous mocktail that's ever existed because there's been more attention to that. Because right. I think the ritual is so important. I feel like I've worked with people for whom the ritual of the drink is almost more important than the alcohol. Hey, this means yes. I'm off the clock. This means I'm with friends. This means I'm celebrating. This means that nobody's going to tell me to do anything right now. And I imagine for parents, for people who are caring for elderly relatives, for people who feel like they're never really off the clock, that drink is a little bit of a signal of, well, at least I'm going to create my own little mini pause right now. And you can do that with a fun, gorgeous mocktail or cup of tea or particularly good coffee or whatever it might be. So I love that idea that it doesn't have to be all or none. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, it's also really consistent. There was very elegant research done around alcohol-related expectancies mm-hmm. and the double placebo trials. And I love this because it's such elegant research. So, you know, at University of Washington, which I worked at for many years, they created a, a bar lab. And there literally yes. is a bar associated with the psychology department at UW. Mm -hmm. And so they did these lovely experiments where they would bring in volunteers and they were either told they would get alcohol or they were told they would, that they wouldn't get a drink. And then they Mm -hmm. either got alcohol or they didn't. Right. So for the group who were told they got alcohol and got alcohol, they did what you would expect. There was dancing, there was flirting, the groups that are really interested and the group that were told they weren't getting alcohol and didn't get alcohol were very boring. They sat at the tables, they studied, <laughs> they didn't talk to each other. They didn't make eye contact. Right. Yes. The groups that were so interesting were the two that were mismatched. The, yes. Right. The group that didn't get alcohol, but were told they were getting get alcohol. They looked just like the group that were told they were getting alcohol. They and did. Mm-hmm. In one case, they moved tables around. There was dancing. There was flirting. The volume, they could measure the actual volume of sound in the room. Volume went way up. They were indistinguishable. And what's equally as interesting were the group that were given alcohol but were told that they weren't. They were quiet, didn't interact much, were sleepy, and felt hot. And they attributed it to other things. They're like, oh, this room is really overheated. Oh, I was up so late studying. I can barely keep my eyes open. What they mostly got were the depressive effects of drinking or of alcohol. Yes. What that tells me is that so much of the effects of the drug are from our expectations, our beliefs about what alcohol will do for us rather than mm-hmm. the drug itself. And so that ritual, as you were talking about, that making the drink, that I'm off the clock, that I'm celebrating with friends, we don't need the drug to get there, right? It's that belief. It's the ritual, right? We can bring that to the table. We don't need the alcohol for it. Absolutely. Yes. 
that research is so fascinating. And my mm -hmm. master's thesis involved in part alcohol expectancy effects. And I remember a couple of years later, yes. my husband and I were planning our wedding. And I remember sort of making the joke, like, maybe we don't pay for the open bar. We just <laughs> tell everyone that's what. <laughs> Let's save some money here because people are going to dance just the same. It's true. But yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. And like you said, the double placebo, right? So this mm -hmm. element that not only did the people who got no alcohol but thought that they got alcohol, not only did they act as if they got alcohol, but the people who actually had some alcohol in their system... But we're told or thinking that they didn't. And to be clear, it was ethical. So in some yes. way that they knew there was a, you know, et cetera. We want to make sure. And, and at the end, they were told. That's right. That's right. At the end, exactly. they were told that they didn't get alcohol. They weren't allowed to leave the lab until they yes. had no alcohol in their system. Like things were all done appropriately yes. via IRBs. Exactly. But it's fascinating that they actually yeah. didn't feel like dancing so much. And I think that actually yeah. ties into anxiety symptomology in a way that there are folks who have the high heart rate and the sweating and the shortness of breath and... They think it's exciting because, oh my gosh, I'm on a roller coaster, or you wouldn't think <laughs> negatively. It's all about that interpretation of what the right. physical symptoms mean at some point, whereas somebody who interprets their high heart rate as, oh my God, this is bad, I'm nervous, and I'm supposed to give a speech, and everybody's going to see me shaking, it's the negative interpretation, even though it could be the exact same physical symptoms. Two people that are on a roller coaster right next to each other might have the exact same physical symptoms. One person loves it, the other person hates it, and I think there's a parallel there in the sense of what the physiological effects of a substance are is only part of the story. It's our interpretation mm -hmm. and our expectancy of what those effects means, where some of the power comes, for better or for worse, I suppose, in exactly. the cases of the bar. Is, that, uh, is the bar lab still going uh, strong over there at University of Washington? Are they still doing some stuff? I imagine they with are. COVID, it got a little more complicated. I, I think during COVID, there were no studies in the bar lab. Yes. Um, you know, so much of that research was done by Dr. Alan Marlott, who passed away mm -hmm. a, a yes. number of years ago now. But I do believe that they are still doing research using that bar lab. Such a great yeah. place to be able to answer important questions around alcohol and behavior. For sure. Yeah. As we wrap up, and my goodness, I could talk to you all day about this <laughs> stuff. It's been so so wonderful to have. And I and I don't even need a cocktail, right, to find this fascinating and fun. I feel like dancing. Um, thinking about treatment, and I imagine whether or not, obviously, somebody has trauma or some of the comorbidities matters immensely in terms of what treatment will look like. But there is no typical person, of course, but for a person that is close to average in terms of maybe alcohol abuse, how are we thinking in terms of treatment? I know that there's no one size fits all. And I know that there are people who like to say there are, right? Like, well, this type of treatment is not where it's at. You know, I always tell my students, addiction is a monster. It's rough. And the more tools that we have, the better. So let's try as much as possible. And let's embrace as much as possible that seems to have the data behind it. What are some of the themes that you take note of in terms of what seems to be most helpful in the treatment interventions that we have at, at this point in time? Yeah, um, I love that you said that there is no one size fits all. Um, I'm a firm believer in that. I, I laugh because I do lots of psychotherapy research around what works. Mm -hmm. um, 
and I'm not someone who tends to develop treatments. And so I describe myself mm -hmm. as treatment agnostic. Show me the data <laughs> and I'm a true believer. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, and one of the nice things is that with substance use, we have a number of options that do look like they are effective. And mm -hmm. so, you know, interventions like motivational interviewing or motivational mm -hmm. enhancement therapies, these are brief conversations with people. You can almost think about it as a check-in with your doctor around how you're feeling right now about your substance mm -hmm. use and finding a goal that works for you, right? That's an option. Mm -hmm. There are cognitive behavioral therapies that are much more skills-oriented that again are time limited and structured that can be very helpful for people in terms of learning skills that they can apply to change their drinking in ways that are helpful for them. Mm -hmm. uh, for some people, 12 steps is incredibly mm -hmm. helpful. Those have helped many, many people make a shift in their drinking in ways that again are healthier for them. Um, those tend mm -hmm. to be abstinence focused for folks who really are like, I, I can't drink and that's not something I want to be doing anymore. Those can be great options. Um, there are new mm -hmm. medications that can be helpful for people and can be used either with the therapies or on their own. And we're continuing to see really promising research about medications that can support someone mm -hmm. in changing their drinking. So, you know, I think for an individual who's worried about this, having a conversation with their primary care doctor, um, looking at that NIAAA website and seeing what kinds of options are out there may be a good first step in figuring out what's the treatment that's going to be the best fit for me. And then if that one doesn't fit, try something else, right? If that mm -hmm. provider doesn't feel good, you don't get a good vibe off of them, find a different provider. Right? Just like you would fire a hairdresser that you don't like, it's okay to fire people like me and find somebody who you like better, right? Um, Absolutely. So yeah. those would be my pieces of advice. Yeah. And how for some people, they might try something and then come back to it because yeah. maybe they weren't quite ready, but the seed's been planted. And I think that's so important, too, when we think about loved ones. I always work yeah. with people who want to help a loved one. They the expectation is I should be able to say the perfect thing that makes them see how much they need help. And it's like, okay, that perfect thing doesn't exist. But making yeah. yourself available to listen and to talk and to plant a seed that there yeah. is hope, that there are different types of treatment, that there are new things being developed all the time, that they are not alone. That's the type of thing that can grow over time, even if you meet with resistance right. in that initial conversation because I think it sounds so promising. I mean, I personally have seen every single modality that you mentioned in terms of treatment helpful for someone. Yeah. And some people use multiple at, a, at the same time. And for some people, it's the one thing that clicked into place once I finally exactly. went to that 12-step group or once I finally got that right therapist or once I finally was able to get on this medication that put me on the right track and or Again, once I finally got treatment for my depression or my trauma as well, because right. it's so interconnected, it sounds like there's a lot of reasons to be hopeful. Always. Any last thoughts about what we should be doing to keep that hope going forward? What we can be doing as a society to keep trying 
to help and make things better mm. for folks that are struggling with this? Because obviously the problem in some ways shows some improvement, but in other ways it's getting worse yes. for some people. Exactly. I mean, I think it comes back to actually where we started the conversation. If I was going to put something on us as a society, although that's a big concept, mm -hmm. it's really thinking about access to those resources. Right. And so for me, that's the hard part, whether it's thinking about folks with PTSD who could benefit from care, folks who are concerned about their substance use. We're in a difficult place where we don't have adequate mental health resources for the people who need them. And so it's yeah. really thinking about what we can do to help make more resources accessible for people when they want them. Mm-hmm. And encouraging more people to get into the field, just yes. like you. And you're doing such incredibly important research. Well. And I'm just so grateful for it. Well, thank you. I think we're all in this battle that we see something really significant happening yeah. in terms of just the mental health need really seeming to be at the forefront in ways that it hasn't been before. And in one way, it's really good that we're talking about it so much more because there's destigmatizing things going on and being able to open up conversations, but it also just is exposing how serious things are and how many yeah. people are in pain. And I think you've really extended a ray of hope to those people today. And I appreciate it so, so mm. much. Well, thank you for everything that you're doing to open these conversations and to break down the stigma for folks about thinking about this and having conversations about these issues. Yeah. It's important. Thank you so much. Yes, I value these conversations so much. And here's to nuance. And here's to us being able to really dive deep today and avoid the all or none thinking, except when I said always about avoiding all or none thinking. So <laughs> thanks again, Dr. Kaysen. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today. Once again, I'm Dr. Andrea Bonnier, and this has been Baggage Check with new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Join us on Instagram at Baggage Check Podcast. Give us your take and opinions on topics and guests. And you know you've got that friend who listens to like 17 podcasts. We'd love it if you told them where to find us. Our original music is by Jordan Cooper, cover art by Daniel Merity, and my studio security, it's Buster the Dog. Until next time, take good care. <laughs>